0: I don't believe in no one's scenarios Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay I
1: don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain
2: Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show I'm your host, Isaiah Henkel, and today we're talking about how to get hired as a management consultant in 2021. We have on with us again, James Wadsworth, a former McKinsey & Company consultant and current consultant. He's been on with us before, he has some new insights for 2021. A lot of PhDs are being hired into this role, it's one of our top career tracks that we'll be focusing on in 2021, so make sure you pay attention. We're going to start with a panel of people who have gone through training to get into management consulting who are currently being trained on this and the process, which is very different from other career paths. So we're going to jump in with them that now. Make sure you enjoy the radio show. Go to phdsgethired.com to learn more about getting trained in management consulting and getting hired in the industry. We'll see you at the end of the radio show where I have more important information on this. Let's talk to our panel now. Very excited to have Amelda, on with us and David. So good to see you. Hi David how are you? Can you hear me? Hi, yeah, hi yeah thanks for coming on. Okay so both our panelists are in the management consulting firm. I appreciate you both being here. I'm, I'm going to ask you two quick questions and just for all of our attendees they're volunteering their time so I just want to ask you both tell me a little bit about uh, just introduce yourself a little bit about your background and then I got interested in management consulting. And I'll start with you,
3: Imelda. Sure. So um, I'm originally from Montenegro. This is a small country in Eastern Europe, a former Yugoslavian country. And I moved to the U.S. Uh, in 2008. So I did my undergrad and Ph.D. Ph.D. at the University of Illinois at Chicago. So I got my Ph.D. last year in organic chemistry. And uh, so I defended November last year, started working December uh, as a medicinal chemist. So I'm still holding this R&D scientist position um, at Zoetis in Michigan. So um, we work on drug discovery in uh, veterinary slash animal health, um, but I still do organic chemistry, which is pretty much uh, work that I did in my PhD only for different purposes.
2: Right, and how did you become interested in management consulting?
3: So it was actually in one of these webinars when I listened to uh, different webinars, there was a data scientist and then management consulting and I really wanted to learn something beyond organic chemistry. And then uh, James who prepared the modules um, was speaking in the webinar and I remember him saying, if you're really into puzzle solving or problem solving, uh, then this is the, uh, the modules. This is the uh, club you, basically. Yeah. And I didn't regret it. I really loved everything that uh, he prepared in the modules, and I'm really happy that I joined. So
2: Perfect. Well, thank you for the quick intro. I'll come back to you in just a minute. Please welcome Imelda and congratulate her on the first transition. Uh, so, David, same question to you, just a brief intro and how you got interested in management consulting.
0: Oh, absolutely. Well, when I was a kid, um, well, I'm from Southern California. When I was a child, I was a child actor and model, and I had some success in that, but I knew it really wasn't for me. So I went into education. Um, I got my master's in education, and then I went on for my Ph.D. in leadership in higher education. I had some really good scholarships, but um, I was getting concerned about employment probably two years before I was graduating, and I was talking a lot about it with uh, advisors. And they didn't really have the answers i was looking for and i found you isaiah around that time as well and it started <laughs> you it started to make a lot of sense so um what the, the other thing is i own a business i own um, a yoga teaching training program and i um i'm a massage therapist so i teamed up with a chiropractor Who's very successful, and I saw that I can really utilize and transfer some of those skills not only for my own business but also to help out the chiropractor who I work with, who's also very successful and has also and often come to me with, you know, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Yeah. So that's where I saw that MFC, and I really, really enjoyed getting into it. And once I got into it, it started fitting like a glove. Yeah.
2: Thank you. And, and I, I, what well, we're trying to show all of you here. Uh, as attendees is it doesn't matter what your background is. Uh, It doesn't matter how certain you even are about the management consulting career track. As far as business acumen training, it is crucial. Um, It can certainly get you hired into management consulting, but you don't need any sort of prerequisites, right? You don't need an MBA, et cetera, to get into this field. Uh, So the last question I have for both of you is before you joined the management consulting firm, what were the gaps you had in your knowledge in terms of industry, how problems were solved in business and industry uh what management consulting was right and then after joining how were those gaps closed so what what have you learned in the program so far and i'll start with you Imelda again oh you're on mute wait let's see if we can unmute you there
3: okay sorry there again um so i basically had no idea um you know when you are in PhD, you're always closed in your lab in your bubble doing research and you're only worried to make reactions happen or whatever research you're doing. So even though I was working in industry for a year, I still had a lot of gaps. And so going through the modules really helped me understand um, how these big decisions on a higher level um, in industry corporations are made. And um, the analysis and a lot of the problem breakdown that uh, James went through in these modules really helped me understand how uh, the decisions are made even when it comes to promotions or uh, mergers of two smaller companies. And so it really helped me understand where I want to be in the future, um, you know, and um, just really helped me get a better picture of industry, you know.
2: Yeah, I like that you mentioned these kind of uh, higher level activities that we maybe hear about in a press release or the news from a pharmaceutical company or biotech, um, but we don't really understand how it works. And so it makes it makes it difficult to have a conversation with any employer during any interview because we've never been through a case study, let alone a case interview. Uh, we've never trained at this level. Um, and as you'll hear from James here shortly, management consulting training, it's like a, a fast track for all of the business knowledge you never gained during your PhD. Uh, so thank you, Imelda. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. David, thanks for waiting again. So, same question to you, right? What were the gaps you had in your knowledge in this area before you joined the program, and then after? What have you learned so far, far that's really kind of accelerated your understanding of business?
0: I think it's a great question because a lot of these, a lot of these uh, ideas that come from the case studies and drop in a framework, we're trained on them, but we didn't know how to piece them together. I uh, grew up where I had to be very personable, and then owning a business. Uh, a yoga school in particular, where I'm teaching classes and students are asking me questions about the philosophy, I really was able to kind of piece it together with the MFC through these uh, case studies. Me and my wife would do them. We would look for more on YouTube and online. We had a lot of fun with them. My dad would watch me do them and, and get a nice chuckle out of them. Um, the idea of dropping a framework. One thing that I really um, took from MFC was the idea of an extra set of eyes. Someone unbiased, un- close to a situation that can tell you, your nephew is a bit of the weak link, you know, in this regard, and how to frame it in the proper phrasing where you don't push anyone over or offend anyone. There's mm. so much to it that I found value in that I can transfer in not only my own business but also the business of uh, affiliates and, and mentors and peers, and mm. it might even be something that I pursue later on, depending on how things go. In California, remote work has been has been probably the biggest thing right now, but. Mm. Um, that's not to say you can't do that with management consulting. So for me, it pieced together a lot of puzzle pieces that were on the, the shelf, and it just glued them together pretty quickly. So I really enjoy it. I feel like I use it daily. It gave me so much extra confidence in all areas of employment as well. Well, wow, Thank you, David. We're
2: very well said. Congratulations on your success so far. It's great having you in the program and seeing uh, your growth in terms of business acumen. Thank you both. All right, great, great panel. Great to hear from uh, PhDs like you uh, with very different backgrounds with these interests and and just really how uh, this program in particular, uh, the value is immense. It's amazing to be able to get training from a management consultant who's worked uh, extremely hard at one of the big three management consulting firms, continues to work in the realm of of management consulting, uh, certainly in terms of solving business problems. Uh, So very, very grateful. Uh, to have James with us. So we'll bring James on. Please do me a favor and give James a big welcome as you see him come on your screen. Really appreciate him being here uh, with his expertise. James, good to see you. Hey,
1: everybody. Can you hear me?
2: I can. Nice headset. All right. So we got James here and uh, really appreciate. Yeah, it's been a while and a great panel. Great to see them kind of come into the group. I think it's really showcased and got rid of, I think it obliterated really the limiting belief that, oh, I, I need an MBA or I don't have this right background or, you know, I, I, this isn't going to be useful for me when, when really it is. Uh, what did you think of the, what the panel said in, in your experience with PhDs who end up getting hired as management consultants in general?
1: Yeah, I, so I love the comments from Imelda and David. I think one of the things I took away there was, um, so with, within the MCF, I am completely committed, and we are all completely committed to making you, uh, helping you become the best candidate that you can become for management consulting the industry. And whether you want to go to one of the big three, um, or uh, you know one of the thousands and thousands of boutique management consulting firms, this stuff will prepare you in a very good way. Mm. But one of the things I took away from what Imelda, uh, Imelda and David were saying is that even right now, what you know, uh, even if you don't end up deciding that you want to go into management consulting, there's tremendous value in this framework led thinking approach to all types of business problems and just all types of real world problems. I mean, uh, management consulting extends beyond business in a lot of ways, into the nonprofit world into, Uh, the worlds of for example education, um, uh, government, and so many other places where the primary objective is not to make a profit. So I just think that there's tremendous value in having this structure of of frameworks that allow you to uh, take on any problem at any level of ambiguity regardless of your own level of expertise because you've learned how to think through uh, the problem-solving process.
2: Yeah. I love that you said that, but I think understanding the scope of value here is really important. A lot of us as PhDs, we always go right to the top, the biggest names. That's all we think about, right? McKenzie, Bain, certainly there's that tier, but then you said there's thousands of other companies that hire management consultants. There might be different titles, different types of consulting, uh, and it trickles all the way down to boutique firms. That might be a handful of people um, you could get paid extremely well there, do extremely well. It might be very, very niche. They might hire only organic chemists to be consultants there. They might hire only you know, uh, chemical engineers or whatever it is. I, I'm trying to think beyond chemistry, right? They might hire only uh, social sciences or humanities, interdisciplinary, because you guys have more of the quality, you work more with qualitative data. And then having that business acumen that the management consulting gives you allows you to get into this. It's really any consulting job, right? The management consulting is more of a official title, I think, at the bigger firms. But there's a lot of variety here. So I'm really glad that you kind of opened that that up for everybody. (laughs) So (laughs) as as far as the industry growing, we obviously want all of you guys to focus on the careers that are growing in 2021. Right. Not to not the careers that are not going to grow careers that will be there, even if, you know, as workforce decentralization, virtual work, et cetera, accelerates. Management consulting is definitely one of them. Can you help us understand, uh, I guess, the the scope of this and why that might be, James?
1: Yeah. So so a couple of things kind of come to mind on on uh, just a couple of days ago, I was talking with a consultant currently at McKinsey, um, and he was saying that he is just swamped he he has no time and that's that's kind of crazy you'll as you'll learn if you guys join the program that's crazy to hear coming from a management consultant because they already work a lot hmm. they work very hard So his comment was uh, so many companies are trying to revamp their strategies right if you think about what's happened um, there are people who are saying that we've uh, just over the last eight, nine ten months we have, gone through the equivalent of five or six years of digital change, digital transformation, right, of moving everything into the digital world. Isaiah just mentioned uh, remote work. Um, A lot of industry experts, a lot of people thought that this would happen at some point, well, we we just we just made it happen, right? Over the last several months, we just jumped five or six years, right? There's actually some analysis analyses you can do that show that it's probably about around six years. So that means that all types of co- companies are having to completely rethink um, how they mobilize their workforces, how they hmm. keep employees happy and satisfied, and then of course on the front end, how do they make their services? Uh, or products available to people in this new world. So everything from DoorDash, which IPO'd last week, I don't know if you guys saw that, yes. right? But an amazing story, something that was really accelerated because of the pandemic. Um, everything from DoorDash to you know helping uh, your local restaurant figure out how to deliver their product to people uh, during a lockdown or during this pandemic to uh, you know, a massive software company trying to figure out how do we, uh, you know, how can we get our services, our products to people without going in front of them physically and selling them? You know, how how can we sell online? How can we present more of our value proposition digitally? So there's tons of stuff and the, the industry is growing massively, um, uh, you know, probably, counter to what a lot of industries are doing right now. It's growing very, very quickly.
2: Yeah, and you have a lot of people uh, that were in the online space and you have this flood happening and how do you uh, adapt to dif- differentiate? I mean, it really is fascinating when you start thinking about it from a business perspective versus, uh, you know, just as a spectator, <laughs> watching the shift, and uh, maybe not even being aware of it. Uh, so so we heard the panelists talk about this objective Third party and the value of that. So, who is this objective third party uh, that they were they were talking about, and why is it valuable?
1: Yeah, so I like to to uh, to talk about management consulting in terms of that objective, um, outside observer role that allows you to come in and tell people what's what, bluntly, right? But back it up with evidence. So, uh, it, you know, you can think about an attorney, for example, coming in and being an objective. Uh, consultant for you in your business or in your personal life. For, for example, management consulting is very much the same type of approach, but it's all about um, how do we take a, a, an outside in look at your business and tell you what needs to change, what needs to improve. Here's the, you know, here's the weakness. Uh, I love what David said earlier, you know, your nephew is the weakest link. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that, right? But that's exactly what a management consultant can do for you. And that's the value that they provide and why so many companies have management consultants on retainer uh, or have massive budgets every quarter to go out and hire management consultants to help them uh, see things objectively and, and make the right decisions.
2: Mm. Yeah, well said. I always uh, I always think of the profit. I love that TV show. Comes in that was <laughs> like, yeah. This family member is not, not doing any work <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, but yeah, having that, uh, you know, you've made references in, in the management consulting firm training material of it being like a lawyer, right? This mm-hmm. objective person who comes in, sees things objectively, and can tell the company um, you're doing this wrong. I mean, it's avoiding confirmation bias and as PhDs, you should all understand that. Uh, you, you talked a little bit about the trends that we're seeing in, uh, Obviously, with the workforce decentralization, remote work, what else can you tell us just in terms of risk and, and, and problems and, and how this has affected the management consulting uh, field in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that there's, um, uh, you know, the management consulting industry is one of those industries that for whatever reason is, is pretty well protected against the, the risks that most industries are uh, facing right now, right that a lot of industries are facing right now. and this is quite common. it's not just the specific risks risks of this pandemic and this recent recession that uh, during which management consulting uh, continues to grow and that growth even continues to accelerate, hmm. but in past recessions as well, right. so I was hired into management consulting on the on, just on the you know in the depths of the first great recession, right I was hired uh, in 2010. Um, you know, prices, the S&P 500, housing prices, and a lot of those things didn't really bottom out until 2012. Um, But I was hired and the firm increased the numbers that it hired every year during that recession because uh, when times get tough and there is more weighing on every decision, right? So imagine you're a, you know, you're a director, you're a VP at some corporation. If this decision makes or breaks your career, And the number of decisions where that is the case dramatically goes up during a recession because resources are limited. Then you want a management consultant to come in and help you make that decision.
2: Yeah. I didn't think about it that way from the decision-making. I mean, a lot of you can think about it, you know, think of your, the company, you know, in your sector, it might be Dow Chemical or Pfizer, Apple, whatever. It's a huge company, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands. If you consider everything, employees, operations, This is a big ship that can't just turn on a dime. So you need littler ships to come up to it and fix these problems as it's leaking while the ship continues to go its course, uh, even if it ends up turning eventually. Uh, So I I think just understanding the value here shows you that this is a field that we really see as a a safety net for PhDs in 2021. Uh, One of the, the few that tends to increase because there's more problems. So the people that solve problems, the companies that solve problems, they're going to be more valuable, uh, disrupt, like, uh, management consulting firms actually increase in disruption. We've debunked a lot of myths already. I think in terms of you got to have a finance background, you need an MBA, et cetera. What do you see from PhDs? Those that you've talked to in the program or just the activity you've seen, the limiting beliefs that they have, like, likely a lot of our attendees have that we can help kind of dig out before we move forward.
1: Yeah. I, um, It's a great question. I kind of want to say, I don't care if you've never seen a balance sheet or an income statement or a cash flow statement in your life. I don't care if you've never thought about business, right? Uh, The the magic of these frameworks, the magic of this approach is that it can take someone who has no business background whatsoever and give them the vocabulary and the structured approach to problem solving that they need to be credible and to add value as they uh, solve business problems. Um, I think, uh, I just kind of wanna say to every attendee out there, you do not need to be concerned whatsoever about a lack of a business background or lack of a business acumen. You have Mm -hmm. the acumen that you need to be successful in management consulting, because if you are studying at the PhD level, I'm going to assume that you're very comfortable with logic and quantitative analysis. And that you've had to develop some social skills over the course of your career. If you have those, that's all you need. That is all you need. They're not expecting you to, you know, to tell them you know, what, what the NASDAQ was yesterday or something like that, right? It's yeah. literally just about the skills that you already have and transferring those into a business context. And that's, that's exactly what we give you the power to do with the MCF.
2: Yeah, great points. And uh, it'll help you keep things in perspective. You know, there's not this big chasm in terms of the activity you're doing now, the activity level and the activity level you'd be doing as a management consultant or to get hired. Just the what the activity is changes. Uh, the sequence changes, the words change, right? Using industry-specific words, in this case, management consulting-specific words uh, on, your, on your LinkedIn profile, uh, resume, cover letter, all of that's covered. Cover letter in particular is a point of importance for the management consulting career track. That training is also in the management consulting firm. But then the, the interviews, the case interview, the fit interview, very unique interview process for management consulting. And so can you help break down these two interview types and maybe the, the rationale for why firms have, have set these up?
1: Yeah. Uh, so the, the whole idea behind a case interview is we're going to give this candidate a real world business problem. Uh, Most of the time in management consulting, the interviewer is another consultant, right? It's not an HR person uh, or a recruiter, it's another consultant. And often what they're doing is they're taking a real life business problem that they worked on during one of their projects or engagements and presenting that to you as a case interview. The entire idea of this interview is you will work with your interviewer to take a structured approach to walking through the components of this problem and solving it together. So it's it's a dialogue, and it involves a lot of questions, a lot of answers, you asking a lot of questions, asking for more information about A, B, or C. And ultimately, what you're trying to do is just exactly what a management consultant does uh, in sort of a microcosm, right? So, so you're taking uh, something a management consultant does over four weeks or four months and doing it in 45 minutes. And this is the best way that management consulting firms have found to test the skills that they know are important to success. And that's, again, that's quantitative analysis, comfort with quantitative analysis and structured thinking that goes along with that. And social skills, your ability to relate to people, to uh, basically just, they just want to make sure you're not a jerk. Right, so this is uh, it's a great it's a great model, and one of my favorite things about this, I, I'm seeing uh, some this approach that they take, mm. is that uh, this is so practicable. You can get better and better and better just by practicing these with a friend, with your you know with your mom, with whomever. You can get better by practicing and. Uh, I, I think that's true with a lot of, I guess, a lot of interviews up to a point, but this one I, is, is amazing. Just the, uh, the difference between someone who has done maybe one or two or zero case interview practices and yes. someone who's done 50 or someone who's even done 100. The difference is night and day. Mm. It's just, just practice.
2: Yeah, and I really want to dig in. I might even open up some of the workbooks just to look at the frameworks, to, to walk through this process of what management consultants do and really how you solve business problems because all of you as PhDs, you're incredibly valuable. We reference a, a study from McKinsey quite a bit that there's this massive deficit, about 20% in the job market for people who can uh, research and analyze data correctly. And James, you use this word uh, synthesis a lot, walks through the shapes and pieces of the case interview. But can you help us understand this idea of the analysis and the synthesis and why PhDs really excel at this process once they can you know, get over that limiting belief that they can't be good in business?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just want to say on top of that, so many times I've seen PhDs uh, who were scared jump in and at some point it clicks. PhDs pick this stuff up so much faster than, in my experience, and I'm I'm being honest here, so much faster than MBAs or uh, you know undergraduates because you already have the problem solving uh, problem solving skills. You think about how to solve problems in a very similar way, and especially if you're working in um, you know the hard sciences or social sciences as well, you you have a commitment to using. Uh, logic and evidence um, to find an answer to a problem. And that's exactly what, what people want out of a management consultant. So this is just my conceptualization of sort of the shape of a case interview, right? So you start with a business situation question. Um, you know, company A wants to merge with company B. They're both in industry X. Should they do it? That's a business situation question, right? Step zero, and we talk a lot about this in, in the course, You always stop, you restate, you probe for a little bit more information, and then you ask for some time to think and develop your structure. The third step is you lay out your opening structure. You say something like, That is a very good question. Should company A and company B merge? I'm going to uh, try to figure this out, try to come up with a recommendation by first taking a look at operations, then at Uh, taking a look at profitability, then taking a look at core competencies of the two companies and comparing the two. blah. blah, blah. That was a terrible example. Nobody do that if uh, you're doing a case interview, (laughs) what I just did, but it's all in the, it's all in the, in the workbooks.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it makes sense to, I mean, I think, sorry, just to step back the open there's what, let's talk about this because I I always think whenever we start talking about this, I always think of the airplane full of uh, ping pong balls. Yeah. So, There's two types of case interview questions to start, and the way that you start them is you have to basically repeat them and you focus on process. So let's, before we jump into the analysis, can you tell us the two types? I mean, business situations one, the other type that you know that I alluded to with the, the ping pong balls, the is es-
1: yeah, the estimation question, estimation, yeah. right? Yeah, so so we talk about both these types of case interview questions uh, throughout the course. So an estimation question, Isaiah, just give an example of one. A lot of times these, uh, well, you know, it's not as often as it used to be, but sometimes management consulting interviewers will ask an off the wall question like, how many ping pong balls can fit into a seven forty seven? the idea uh, that that really brings out the point that it does not matter whether you get the answer to a case interview right or wrong does not matter the only thing that matters to them is the process that you go through the process that you talk through with the interviewer in your dialogue is is it you can be i mean you can be off by Maybe one or two orders of magnitude on your estimate yes. for the number of ping pong balls, and as long as you got there logically and rationally, and your assumptions were somewhat valid, and you talked and communicated your structure throughout, you're golden.
2: Yeah, and that's what this is showing, right? So the the answer does not matter. This uh, you know, cute little Punnett square. That's really it's just showing the answer doesn't matter. It's really the process, and that's why you as a PhD excel here. And that's really what is You're setting up in the open. As a PhD, I I would say half of my training as a grad student was just learning to say, I don't know, but here's how I would find out. I mean, how many of you would agree in the chat box? Like at some point, you were pushed by your thesis committee or someone else, if, you know, hopefully if it was done properly, to be able to say that without getting defensive and trying to blame somebody else or I I couldn't do this experiment or I couldn't do this because of whatever. It's just, I don't know, but here's how I would find out. You know even autonomously without blaming anybody else with complete uh responsibility uh of of the logic on how to f- you know even if you got was more negative data at least you would go about finding it the difference here is you have to externalize it and you know james i'd like to hear more on this that externalization like how literal does the externalization have to be when they a- after they ask you the question yeah this
1: is this is another aspect of case interviews that is very unique. Um, so the idea here is you have to communicate all of your thinking. So you, you can't, uh, so the example I give all the time is I, I don't care if the, they asked you two plus two equals four. You need to say out loud, well, uh, two and add two more. That's, that's going to make a total of four. You're going to say it out loud. This, this is maybe one of the most diff- more difficult, uh, habits for some PhDs to pick up because you might have the habit of, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to figure this out on my own and I'll come back to you when I have an answer. Mm -hmm. But what you want to do is vocalize every single step. Another aspect of this that we talked about in the program is you will have a piece of notebook paper in front of you. That's your tool for going through these case interviews and you will be writing, uh, you'll be drawing a framework, drawing a structure, You'll turn and show that structure to your interviewer and say, this is this is the structure that I've laid out. Here's what I'd like to examine first. Uh, and, you know, so those two things are essential. And the reason that they're asking you to do that is, one, they just, uh, there's no other way for them to know how you're thinking, how you're going uh, through this, what your process is. And two, that's exactly what you will do in a real-life consulting situation, is you will be communicating your uh you will be communicating your recommendation, obviously, but when you communicate the evidence behind that recommendation, the reason why you landed there or what, uh, whatever you need to tell them to convince them that this is the right way for them to go as a company, you're also going to need those communication skills. So mm. um, two plus two equals
2: four. Say that out loud. Don't, don't do it in your head. <laughs> yeah. And, oops. Am I unmuted? There we go. So uh, yeah. I think, for a lot of you, too, this makes sense. The difference is they're training you to be able to talk to executives without any sort of technical training, very busy people, investors stakeholders, whatever, who are not going to be able to uh, you know piece together whatever inferences your spotty communications making, right? We get away with that in academia because everybody's really, really tuned into your field. Your thesis committees there. they can make those jumps in uh, logic or the inferences, et cetera. but people you're going to be going into at another company can't do that so you have to externalize what your thought process is what your rationale is even if it seems super simple to you and they drive that home with james example of you know two plus two is four then there's the analysis section section uh the problem isolation synthesis so how do you isolate the problem just an overview here we'll look at frameworks of course here in a minute and how do you make a recommendation once you isolate the problem?
1: Great question. So the reason I have this, this analysis shape narrowing is because at the opening you're examining every piece of your structure, right? So let's say you have A, B, C, and D. You're talking with your interviewer and you're saying, uh, first, I'm going to take a look at a, let me ask a couple of questions. First, you you know, let's say a is a, a business unit of this company. Um, So does this business unit, is this business unit profitable? Have they been profitable for the last five years? What has their growth rate been? Uh, What does their cost structure look like? You're starting to ask a bunch of these questions. We tell you what questions to ask in the program. And through the course of that dialogue, you either uh, eliminate A as a possibility, like it's no longer something that you need to investigate further, or you figure out you know what, this is where I need to investigate further. So it's, I, I, I mean, in some ways, and I'm, I'm going I'm yes. to embarrass myself because I've never been in the lab, right? I haven't right. done a lot of what you guys have done. But in some ways, it's just doing experiments uh, on a very, very small scale because you're just testing, okay, you know what? We're trying to figure out how to make this company more profitable. Well, we could do that by focusing on reducing costs. So the mm-hmm. first thing I want to ask you is about costs. Have, have costs gone up? Uh, let's talk about your overhead, your materials costs, Uh, you know, your labor costs, which of those are the largest? Do we have any more information about that you can give me? Let's say I look at it and I decide, you know what? Cost looks pretty good. I'm going to ask you, interviewer, are are these costs, uh, how do these compare if we benchmark them or if we compare them to uh, our peers in the industry? And if he says, great, I say, you know what? I'm not going to focus on costs anymore. I'm going to throw that away because I think there must be opportunities somewhere else. I'm mean, going to look on the revenue side. How can we increase sales to increase profitability? So there's, there's a lot that goes into that analysis, but it's just the process of asking about A, B, C, or D and eliminating until you get down to the problem, the isolated problem. The isolated problem, we go through this as well in the, in the, in the program. It could be something like, I was talking about costs. It could be something like, you know what? It looks like materials costs have gone way up over the last couple of years. That seems to be the culprit and perhaps what is behind the company's decreasing profitability. So can you tell me anything about why these have gone up? Maybe it's our suppliers are charging us more. Yes. Uh, do, we, do we have resources that are you know r- or raw materials that are natural resources uh, and commodities? And so the commodities markets have changed. Uh, there's been a reduction in supply. So the price has increased. You, you, that's how you get to problem isolation. And then Isaiah mentioned earlier when you talk about when I talk about synthesis, management consultants use this in a very uh, specific way. And I think, mm. um, at least for me, it felt very specific when I was completely new to this. But uh, synthesis is the opposite of analysis, right? Analysis is to break things apart into into its components. That's how you solve a problem as a management consultant. Synthesis is you put all of those parts back together into a whole. And the single most valuable thing. Uh, that PhDs, in my opinion, bring to the table in management consulting is this ability to synthesize, to give people the so what. Um, Even when it comes to massive amounts of data, everybody's swimming in data. Every company has tons and tons of data. the, The problem is not getting more data. It's figuring out the so what from that data. And that's what PhDs excel at. So right. that's, that's what you do when you synthesize. You say, well, here's what this means, and here's what you should go do because of
2: it. When it comes to solving the case interview, there's these different frameworks or these different um, uh, parts or components that are shown here, James. Can you introduce them to us? Yeah, so this is, this is something that I think
1: is really unique to what the MCF can offer. I, prior to uh, getting into management consulting, I searched for uh, training materials. I used a, I spent a lot of money. I used a lot of the training materials that are out there. Probably, And they're all the same ones that you will see right now if you go on Google, right? And none of them had this approach to creating frameworks. The main thing, the main reason why we focus on just five elements that are common, that can be used no matter what business situation question is given to you. Is to save you from doing what a lot of these other courses recommend, which is memorizing twenty different frameworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you got you got the four P's, the three C's. These are all real frameworks, by the way, that you can search for. Right? You've got your profitability framework, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, if you get extremely familiar with these five elements, uh, you can pick and choose them as appropriate for any question that is thrown at you, and you can create your own frameworks on the fly. So, uh, uh, you know, just just to take one of those, for example, customers, you know, a lot of questions and a lot of questions, you're going to want to know more about customers, right? So, um, so even the question that I said, I mentioned very, very early on just about uh, merger and acquisition, right? One of the things I would want to test before I make a recommendation about uh, one company merging with or acquiring another is I want to understand if they share customer a customer base they share a group of customers or if there's little to no overlap between two sets of customers that these companies serve respectively so how do I how do I frame out getting all of that information in the right way well I'm going to start and we go through all of this in the materials right I'm going to start with customer segmentation You can't just think of all customers as the same. You have to divide them up into groups. So how do you do that? Well, you can do that demographically, right? So you've heard the terms millennials, uh, Gen X, boomers. Those come from marketing and customer segmentation, right? Mm -hmm. Because those are groups of people that think differently. You can think about age ranges. uh, You can think about industries. If It's a a business-to-business corporation. Okay, within those segments which is the largest segment, right? So if you're a, I don't know, if the company was TikTok, what is the largest segment in terms of generation of TikTok users, TikTok customers? I would, my guess would be Gen Z, right? Mm. The folks that are younger than millennials. So, okay, that's the biggest one. Help me understand their mindset. So how price sensitive are they? Meaning if I raise prices, do they continue to buy at pretty much the same rate? Or do they drop things immediately? Um, how? What are their wants and needs? What are they trying to get out of this product? Et cetera, et cetera. Right? So you do that with each of these components, and you can mix and match, put them together into frameworks. I wish so badly I had this before I went into my case interviews, um, and I would have done better with a lot of firms that I didn't do quite as well as I did with McKinsey at. Right. So one of the things I tried to offer, we try to offer in the materials here is how do these components all fit together, right? So just, right. this is just a quick snapshot, something I want to give you to allow you to think about business as a whole. I just talked about customers, customers, the groups of people that you want to give your product or service to, that you want to, uh, the people that you want to help, basically, through your product or service, right? Products, or uh, they can be physical, they can be digital, Or we use the term products, we can lump services in there as well. It can be consulting, which is a service, something that you do for someone, right? Um, Companies are trying to sell their products and services to customers. Multiple companies, uh, if you have multiple companies within a similar market, they're competing with each other. And the dynamics of competition are something to think about. think about extensively think about um, this is where kind of a little bit of game theory comes in, right? You have to Mm. think about the dynamics of competition as you're making major business decisions, whether it's mergers and acquisitions or something else. And then the broader market is just, that's a group of companies with similar customers or similar products competing with each other uh, to win, to win in that market space. Uh, And then outside of all of that, you have kind of the last element, which is just external forces, Economic shifts—something that shifts the supply curve or shifts the demand curve in a big way, like the pandemic. So this this little this little model, if you can uh, after our course, if you can have this in your mind, you can deal with any business business situation question in a very structured way.
2: Yeah, and I just want to jump to the, these are the actual workbooks in the program, and the these frameworks are it's really a fast track to understanding business. The curtain gets pulled back a little bit. It's been dramatically uh, impactful to me. Uh, so if you start breaking this down, you mentioned the profitability framework. So can you walk us just through this, you know, from left to right profits, how it's split? This, a lot of these uh, terms we can understand easily as PhDs, but we just, you don't know what you don't know. You never, you know, maybe thought of price per unit as being something that, that's a lever for a business to uh, adjust to be more successful. And you can be the one recommending that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we, so we think about, um, the easiest thing to think about here is any manufacturing business, business, right? So you have a business that creates widgets and sells those widgets to customers. So the profitability th- framework is everybody uses it. It's very satisfying because it is uh, kind of mathematically complete right? Hmm. Profit is equal to revenue less costs. That makes sense to everybody, right? So if I'm trying to increase profitability, I really only have two options. I can increase revenue um, or I can reduce costs. So within those, if we take revenue first, we're going to break down revenue in a very specific way because we've found, management consultants have found over decades, so this is the this is the best, uh, most beneficial way to analyze revenue. We're going to break it down into price per unit and volume or the total number of units. So if you think about widgets, uh, let's say I sell a widget for $5. Every widget is $5. Uh, So I have a couple of options. When I think about price per unit, I can, what if I just increase that to $6? What is the market going to do? Um, Am I going to be able to sell the same number? What if I increase that to $7? What if I... Uh, you know, what if I have different types of widgets that I can add different features to? So I I come up with a $3 option, a $4 option and a $5 option. How do I think that's going to uh, impact things, right? The volume is the total number of units that you sell. So simplest way is uh, to increase revenue is to sell more units, right? So where can I find new markets, new sets of customers that would be interested in buying more of my widgets? So all of these, you will go into and investigate it over the course of a case interview. On the cost side, variable costs, that aligns with price per unit because that's basically the same as saying cost per unit. So uh, there's a specific type of, there's specific costs that go into making a widget. Let's say my widgets are made out of steel, right? So the cost of steel, the amount of steel that I purchase, that cost to me as a business is entirely dependent on the number of widgets I make because I have a set amount of steel that goes into each widget. That is a variable cost. That means it goes up or down along with revenue. So a fixed cost is stuff that stays the same regardless of the number of widgets I produce. So that would be electricity, the rent for your factory, uh, the machines, the um, uh, you know all of the energy, heating, cooling, everything else that goes into the overhead costs of running running your business. So you can analyze all of those pieces. And within one of those pieces, as long as you can get to the right, right information, you're going to isolate the problem and figure out what recommendation you should make to this business. Mm-hmm. So that framework is the basic one. That's where we start you. Uh, and it's a great way to learn is to start with that framework. I used it extensively through my real interviews with McKinsey, with Bain, with, with other firms, uh, profitability, Uh, framework is awesome and it it gets you to the right place.
2: Yeah. And and we don't have time to go through this, but uh, you know, that's a piece that then gets added to a larger framework that allows you to solve these problems. And that's what we're trying to piece together for all of you to help you understand. Uh, You don't have these tools in your toolbox. Every tool that you learn, like the profitability framework allows you to leverage a bigger tool to answer a bigger question, right? So the profitability framework is mixed in uh, to this larger question, you know, how how do you increase sales? uh, When you evaluate those key, those five key components that James talked about, in this case, we're just looking at three of them, company, market, ideas for growth. But you can see how volume pricing uh, falls in here. And that's pulled from the profitability uh, framework. So uh, lots of of great insights we'll go through, uh, you know, in the management consulting firm, you'll go through all of these different frameworks, you'll understand it, and you'll come out the other side. I don't know how to describe it. But seeing something very clearly that you were never trained on a whole. And if you can marry that to your technical training as a PhD, it makes you invaluable in industry. And and we really appreciate James coming on and uh, showing us that. So thank you, James. Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. This takes us to the end of this show. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at cheekyscientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position's right for you. You can go to PhDsgethired.com, that's plural, PhDsgethired.com, to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association, that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association, I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code Cheeky Radio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. PhDs dot com. simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it then enter the coupon code cheeky radio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now that's cheeky radio c-h-e-e-k-y r-a-d-i-o remember your value as a phd and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely, you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses. and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. PhDs P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, Then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees. Nobody else offers this. phdsgethired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power. And your net work is your net worth.